Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, I've got Len Gresky here. He's a principal consultant at Leading Agile, and we're going to talk all about emotional systems and leadership, and it's very complicated. Um, so before we get into it, Len, would you mind introducing yourself? To, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, would you mind introducing yourself to everybody and letting them know a little bit about your background? Sure. Hello, everyone. I'm Len Gresky, and uh, and I lead the the architecture practice at Leading Agile, and uh, and I have about thirty years experience helping companies build better products, and um, and I got into the 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 business of building products through uh, an experience as an undergraduate where I wound up on a research project to study political contributions to Illinois legislative candidates and quickly found myself writing software to do data analysis. And eventually, uh, as my career progressed, the software development became more interesting than the research problems. And I made a transition into developing software. And, and as I developed my craft, I learned that I could be predictable and get my work done. And then I wound up being assigned as a project manager and completely tanked a project. <laughs> and, and that's when I began to apply some of what I learned in my academic training as a sociologist, that the most difficult challenges in delivering great products is getting people to work together. And, and it occurs at all layers in an organization, whether you're an individual or a leader on a team or a leader of a team or a leader of an organization. And, and so, you know, I'm excited to talk about the, um, the emotional systems theory because it is a really useful tool in helping us deliver great products and influence the people that we need to influence to create sustainable change. Cool. All right. Thank you. Um, so what I just I want to add one little thing here. So when we talk about this stuff today, why it's important is if you're going to be leading people or working with people, like you have to understand the system you're working in. You have to understand a lot about yourself. You have to understand about the people around you and the way that you're interacting together. Um, I think Len and I both come at this from different lenses, but it ends up in a very similar place. Um, and it's all rooted in, in family, the family structure, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, the, the systems theory was developed by Murray Bowen, a, uh, a, a psychiatrist who spent time um, as, a, uh, as a doctor in, uh, during World War II and treated a number of soldiers. And after the war, as, as he worked with, with uh, soldier veterans, he observed that there were patterns in the way that they responded to trauma. And, uh, and that as he analyzed those patterns, he discovered that the patterns were related to the positions people played in their families of origin. And so he developed the family systems theory uh, that looks at a family as an emotional unit and then uses systems thinking to describe the interactions among the family members. 
Now, the theory has been applied beyond the family unit, and therefore it's useful for understanding the interactions of people in any group that interacts regularly. All right. So and for the folks that are listening, if you're new to this, I'll tell you one thing that I've been kind of picking up as I've been learning about this. So we could, I was prepared to talk with Len about this for the interview. Um, in, in looking through the different things we're going to talk about, it, it might be really easy to see how within your own family dynamic, you play a certain role or there's this thing in play. But then taking a step back and thinking, all right, well, how does this show up at work with the people on my team and the people I interact with? Like that's a really interesting application of it. I think it's it's maybe not not quite as obvious. I don't know. Maybe is it obvious for you, Len, to like automatically see these patterns at work? Well, I, th- I think that some people are more attuned to naturally be systems thinkers than others. Okay, but it's a relatively small proportion of the population. Okay. Uh, however, we can all learn how to think in systems and therefore, you know, it's worth learning about because the systems effects are significant. And, and if we fail to address the systems effects by just working with individuals, you know, we're not going to get the outcomes that we need. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm nervous about asking this question because I know you know so much more about systems thinking than I do. How would you briefly explain systems thinking to somebody who'd never heard of it before? Just in case anybody's not like hip to that when they're listening to this. Probably the the most basic way is to think that when you have um a group of a group of people or a group of components of like software components that the individual parts have properties, but as they interact, there are effects that are more than just the sum of the parts. Okay. And, and so that systems thinking is being able to see the, the whole as well as the, the parts and how the parts contribute to the effects of the whole okay so just to try to i'm just thinking trying to think of ways to like make it as simple as possible in a band let's say any band that anybody follows there are the people that play the the instruments and sing and do all that and that's important but they're also affected by the people around them management the guitar tech the drum tech like the audience everybody's part of this big system and together they're all creating something they're all impacting one another. That's right. And even sometimes it's the environment. Yeah. Um, you know, that, uh, that, that can play into that, that may not be directly under anyone's control. Yeah, like if you're at a music festival and it starts pouring rain, it's going to make things messy, complicated and frustrating for some. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So um, we're talking about Murray Bowen's emotional systems theory, and, and it starts out with the idea of a family. Do you want to talk about the eight things first? Like, how, What's the best way to get into this? Well, I'd like to talk about a little bit of context. Okay. It, it, first is that in a two-person relationship, there are two counterbalancing forces. There's a togetherness of force where people want to be connected. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a separateness force where people want to be autonomous. 
And a healthy relationship among two people has a balance of being connected while also being sufficiently separate so that you can function as an individual. Okay. And, you know, the, the psychologist, Dr. Henry Cloud talks about in a, you know, in a marriage relationship that it takes two complete people to become one. Mm-hmm. And, and that statement is sort of a, you know, a good summary of the togetherness force and the, the separateness force. And the challenge to balance those forces creates tension in a relationship that generates anxiety. And, and that anxiety renders two-person relationships relatively unstable. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, as people try to manage that tension, you know, if they're in a family, in, in a family unit, that tension gets resolved across different family members based on the role or position in the family. Okay. And so that leads to a set of, you know, fundamental uh, concepts that, that Bowen identified eight significant concepts. I'd like to focus. Can, on, I, ask, can I ask a question about this, this tension sure. anxiety first? So if it's a two person relationship, let's say in a marriage, um, it seems, and I could be wrong. I'm just thinking that in a healthy relationship, there is a certain amount of tension you, and that you want to maintain. Like that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to always create anxiety that's a negative. But the push and pull is is necessary. I mean, it's part of maintaining the the, the structure, right? Well, that's right. A healthy relationship is going to have a balance. Yeah. Of togetherness and separateness. But when it's out of balance, that's when. But when like, it's out of balance, we push then, it all at the kid. Yeah, there. Well, there are two alternatives. When it's out of balance, people either tend towards fusion, which is they sacrifice autonomous functioning for the sake of harmony, or cut off, where they sacrifice connection for the sake of independence. Yeah, and and this you know relates to the first concept in the theory, which is differentiation of self. Okay. And that, and what that means is it's the ability to be emotionally connected to other people while still being autonomous. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, and another way to look at it is self-differentiation is the ability to distinguish one's values from their thoughts and feelings and when a person can do that, the person can live more consistently according to their values in the face of pressure to conform or pressure to just, you know, run away and cut off. Can you, can you give an example of that one? Well, for example, um, it, it, you know, if I have a value of – making decisions based on empirical evidence. Um, I may be in a group where people don't want to use information to make a decision. Okay. Or conversely, you know, like me personally, Mm -hmm. I have a very high tolerance for ambiguity and, 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 and really rely on intuition. Mm -hmm. 
And when I'm working in a group of people who are really detailed and analytical, that can create tension because, you know, some of the people are going to want to do months worth of analysis when I'll look at something in, you know, in five minutes and say, we need to do X. Right. And, and how do I, how do I handle that? Okay. Right. Uh, You know, and some of it you can do through developing new skills. Some of it you can manage through having a diversity of people's backgrounds, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and, uh, but there's emotional tension there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. So for differentiation of self, that's where we're going, right? Or do you want to go into the eight? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so a, you know, a key part of that is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Is, is that in order to distinguish values from thoughts and feelings, I actually have to know what my values are. I have to know how they're related to my thoughts and my feelings and my behavior, mm-hmm. right? So, it, you know, if I say that I'm, uh, you know, uh, I really care about people and, you know, you watch me in meetings and I'm screaming at everybody all the time. Yeah. It's like, you know, dude, what's up with that? And, and, and so this, you know, self-awareness is really key to being able to develop influence because the more I can understand when I'm anxious and man, you know, and manage or reduce my anxiety that allows me to be a non-anxious presence on a team. Okay. And if I'm less anxious than everyone else, in crisis, the team's going to look They'll to me for to leadership. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I think we all know people that we see them, whether at work or home, wherever, we see them react a certain way and we know them well enough to know, like, the thing that they're freaking out about is not, not the issue. There's, like, maybe it's somebody who's uncomfortable with ambiguity and that's creating enough tension that they're kind of lashing out about certain things or attacking something. And, and we know that they're just not, it's not clicking for them. If somebody is less self-aware, right, and they want to be able to engage with what we're talking about a little deeper, is this something where, like, they, they need somebody else to be standing next to them going, hey, it's not about the tomatoes. That's not the problem here. Um, like, how, how would you coach a leader into having more clarity on what is truly happening? Somebody who can hold up the mirror for them. Well, you have to establish credibility. Okay. That, you know, as as I've coached people in a variety of environments, you know, we all have to learn we we have to earn the 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 permission to coach. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's why for people that are low in self-awareness, this type of growth is really hard. But really because important. It's it's really important, and and that's why if you look at Goldman's work on emotional intelligence, why you know he twenty years ago he made the argument that the most effective leaders are people with the highest emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Because they're able to respond in ways 
that makes sense and reduce anxiety in the system as opposed to creating more anxiety. Okay. I have a quick rabbit hole I want to jump into because of what you just said. There's a part of me that feels like having a strong sense of emotional intelligence is like a superpower that some people are just graced with and other people not not having it, so much of it. Do you think that's something that you can learn? Well, I, I think that everyone can learn and grow in in their um, emotional intelligence. Absolutely. Okay. okay. And, you know, but what's required is that you have to look at the, you know, you have to be able to receive feedback mm-hmm. and, and accept it as valid. And, and for some people that's really hard. Okay. And use it and, as and a it, self-reflection tool to try to like sharpen it, up your game. Well, a self-reflection tool or being able to invite people into your life who can, who can, tell you things that you don't want to hear. Okay. Okay. Right. All right. Um, okay. And I interrupted you with that rabbit hole. So sorry, you can keep going. So, so the, you know, the differentiation itself, if you know one and only one thing about the Bowen theory is it's incredibly powerful because, um, it, it, you know, as an individual, if I am less anxious on a team and I'm behaving according to my values Mm -hmm. over time, the team will come to rely on me as a credible source of help and guidance, right? I will have influence even if I don't have positional authority. Because they see you as somebody who is true, like a compass that does actually point North. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Okay. Um, And then if I'm a leader on a team, and I'm less anxious, I will have more of an ability to keep the team calm under stress. Okay. Now, do you think if a leader, if a leader recognizes that this is a gap that they have, is this something that I'm almost thinking like they can outsource it? Like, can they have somebody on their staff who is like the conscience and the watcher and understands what's going on and can tell them like, when you do that, they don't trust you and they need this from you right now. Is that something you can have someone else provide for you or do you have to get this on board for yourself? Well, I I think that if I'm low in self-awareness to begin with, I need an environment where people can give me feedback and, and then I don't blow up when I get the feedback. Okay. Right. Is because if, you know, then by being able to understand the patterns of when are people giving me this feedback, what am I doing? How am I feeling? What, um, you know, what's the gaps between my emotional experience and an objective reality, which is, you know, what the emotional intelligence people would call reality testing is that one way to improve your reality testing is to give, have people give you feedback. Okay. Right. If you're familiar with the, you know, the Johari window, which is a tool about like what people know about me versus what I know about them. And it's kind of broken into four areas. It's like if you know it and I know it, it's public. You know, if it's something about me, Mm -hmm. like if you know it and I know it, it's public. 
If I know it, but you don't know it, it's hidden from you. If you know it about me, but I don't see it, that's my blind spot. Mm -hmm. And if nobody knows it, it's just unknown. In a healthy relationship, you know, you kind of maximize over time, you maximize out that public area of the window because then your behavior is more predictable. Okay. So, and it's, you know, and that thinking is really useful in a, um, a team member to supervisor relationship. Okay. Where often, you know, managers frustrate people because nobody knows what's going on in their heads and they seem inscrutable. Yeah. Right. And the way that we increase the size of the, of the public area is through two techniques. One is disclosure. As I share more about me, you know more about me. Yeah. And then I reduce the blind spot by through feedback, by making it safe okay. to give me feedback. Right. Okay. And. And so there are a number of techniques that one can use to develop a self-awareness that's necessary to self-differentiate. Okay. Now, the next thing that is, is really important to know is the idea of a triangle. Is that in a two-person relationship, when there's tension, often a third party or issue is brought in to re- reduce the tension between the two people. Okay. And, um, and, and so that, that focus can be something like rescuing, blaming, or mediating. And, and so, for example, if a couple is having trouble in their relationship, they may focus their energy on a child. Mm-hmm. And, and then the focusing on the child then reduces the urgency to resolve the tension between the two parents. Yeah, it allows them to to put you know to put it down in the name of this thing, this person that we've created. That's where all our focus should be anyway. But we can let go of our internal stress, and it, unfortunately, it places a lot of weight on the kid. That's right. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, without getting into a lot of the, the details, you know, some of the other, that, that triangling in the workplace is really yeah, important. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about next. Because, you know, as, as I'm working on a team, if, you know, Pat and Joe have a conflict, are they always dragging me in to mediate it? Mm-hmm. Or is Pat asking me, to go convince Joe to do something. So this third party in a way is an actor that is adopted in order to help maintain the tension that exists between the two to stabilize well, like, or, like a, like a re- third leg on a tripod. Well, it's like, that's right. It's like a, a release valve for some yeah. of the tension, but, but that and maybe I'm leading into another one of the things that pressure or anxiety or whatever it is that is pushed at the third person, that's got to go somewhere too, right? I mean, the energy just doesn't dissipate. Well, and and that, you know, within a family, often there is a person in the family, you know, when a family has stress who experience either experiences the bulk of the pressure Mm -hmm. or acts out in response to the pressure and in the in the family systems theory, that person's known as the identified patient. <laughs> and one of the things that's inter- an interesting implication about the 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 theory is 
that um, it's you typically don't work directly with the identified patient. Okay. And instead, um, in, instead of trying to change someone else, the guidance is to change the part that one of the individuals plays in the system. Mm-hmm. Change so the system, not the person. Change the system, not the person, because and, and the way that we do that is through self-differentiation. Okay. And, and, and so if I'm in a system that's got a lot of tension, I can create change in that system by self-differentiating, changing my behavior, mm-hmm. being less anxious. And that reduction in anxiety will cause the other, the other people in the system to change their behavior, which will Im- improve the functioning of the whole group. Okay. So I want to ask a question about the identified patient. Um, I did a podcast a long time ago where I asked with another person who worked at Leading Edge when we were talking about, I don't remember what it was, but basically the idea is that in most people's minds, they're like the hero of the story, right? And everybody else in the universe is there as like a supporting character in the movie about them. This person said they didn't feel that way about themselves, which I've never met anybody who said that before. And I'm wondering, are there people who don't, when you say identified patient, the reason I started laughing was I'm thinking like, that's it. We all think we're the identified patient. We all think that we're the one that everybody's like, blah, at us. And we've got to absorb all the stress. Don't we? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I, that I necessarily agree with that statement, but, but I would agree that, you know, people, we have a tendency to view the world from our perspective, you know, as self versus other, yeah. which, you know, could contribute to some of that. But on the other hand, um, you know, the the most effective leaders are able to subordinate their own personal desires for uh-huh. the good of the group. Okay. Right. And and um, and and that is what causes people to follow. Is that if they f- people feel like their interests are being are are being supported and and cared for, they will you know they will do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. For example, I once was asked to take over a a failing innovation project that had been in development for eight years and never delivered anything in a production. Okay. I was given 10 weeks to build working tested product ahead of a stock analyst meeting where they were going to demo this product. Okay. Now remember it had been in development for eight years years, and never produced anything. Right. So I had 10 weeks. I knew it was going to be a death March because you know, Mm -hmm. it, it was going to be really hard to produce this. And we assembled a team and when we started, it's like, look, this is going to be a death march. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is not my preferred way to work. Yeah. We're going to do this for 10 weeks. And when it's done, you will be able to say that you delivered in 10 weeks something that couldn't get done in eight years. Yeah. Right. And, and so people followed me. High stakes, and high it, engagement, high level of self-sacrifice, high reward. 
And, and, and that, you know, I, I, I was in the room working with people, you know, that wasn't like, Hey, you know, show up with donuts once a week and let me know how it's going. (laughs) And, and, and it was hard. It was not easy. We had to, you know, we had to do a lot of difficult things to, to implement this, um, uh, product. Right. But four days before the stock analyst meeting, we were in production. Okay. And, and the, you know, and, and it worked and we were able to get feedback from, from customers in the days leading up to the analyst meeting. And that product, you know, reached number 76 on the mobile retailer 400 within 12 months of launch when it sat in development for eight years. Right. And so that team, what they got out of that was a really important accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And they didn't work, you know, the, the death march ended after the initial release. And that reinforced the trust that they were able to and have. Which you. reinforces the trust. Okay. So, so the, you know, knowing what our values are mm-hmm. and being able to live according to our values and, and deal with the realities. It's like, wow, this is going to be hard. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie to you that this is going to be easy. This is going to be really hard because no one did it in eight years. So if it was easy, they would have figured it out years ago. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and then they have the agency, they have the option of choosing to participate or not. Correct. That's right. Okay. And, and that, you know, and that change process of how do you create change is it's about, working to be more differentiated in a, in a relationship, which means you've got to observe yourself in relationships and identify patterns that are either driven by fusion is like being absorbed in the group or cutoff where you're just mm-hmm. like, heck with everybody. I'm going to do this myself, buzz off. I'll, you know, I'll get it done myself. Right. Right. Which both damage the group. Okay. So, Let's say that I am at the top of an organization and I'm buying into all this and I, and I realize that in order for all this to change, I have to change myself first. So I start to change. The thinking would be that it's kind of like this trickle down theory where I change, the people that report to me change, people that report to them change. Eventually life gets better for the people on the teams, right? Well, th- that's one way to look at it. Okay. But if as a leader, I get more involved with the teams directly mm. okay, and, um, and I'm pr- emotionally present with them, okay. the rate of change increases. Okay. Right. So for, for example, um, you know, one organization where we were you know, leading, leading an agile transformation, we were you know, structuring a team of teams um, to work in a new way. And, and we were using a, an approach that included group planning. And as we did the first group planning uh, exercise, I was, as I walked around to the different team rooms, I could observe that most of the teams were not planning to anywhere near their capacity. Okay. 
And, and so I saw the first team and, you know, I asked them some questions and, and they said, well, you know, there's some work that's not on our backlog that we need to pay attention to. And so we're reserving some capacity for that off backlog work. Mm-hmm. Then I went to another team and asked them, you know, observed the same pattern, got the same answer. You know, and after the third team, what I found was that every team had multiple backlogs and they were using the capacity to cope to, with it, yeah, to hide the multiple backlogs. So, so then we pulled the add-on cord, made everybody get into a room, and saying, "No off backlog work. Everything that work is being going to be work right. must be on one and only one backlog." You know, every team must have one and only ba- yeah. one backlog, like you know, like we talk about teams backlogs, working tested product, right, right? and. And so we had to do quite a bit of replanning because the volume of off backlog work was greater than the volume of on backlog work. Right. Right. And by being present and and valuing one and only one backlog and all the work needed to be visible mm-hmm. is I didn't need to coach the directors that reported to me to have them coach the managers okay. that reported to them to not you changing the, the system again is changing the system. Okay. Right. And, and, and so it's incredibly powerful because when, when I change my behavior, everyone around me has to change. Yeah. Right. But I've got to be present. Right. right. If I wasn't walking around from room to room at the group planning session and seeing the hidden capacity mm-hmm. and knowing the system effect is like if there's hidden capacity. There's got to be some some other backlog being managed to. Yeah. Right. The the system level effects. OK. Right. Could manage to it. All right. Right. So. I've got to develop a greater ability to see the system, to understand my place in the system, and look at it through these eight different lenses. And then I can begin to modify myself and my own behavior and and make sure like I'm showing up authentically um, to modify the system to create the outcome that I want. Correct? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Have you, is it ever a thing where, like from a social engineering perspective, I understand the system, I understand my place in the system, regardless of whether or not it is me showing up with my values intact, I can take on a certain behavior or attitude or whatever to create a change in the system, basically to like to play the system so that the net result is the impact I need to happen downstream happens. Like I, oh, I abs- constrain myself a certain way. I show up a certain way, which isn't all of me, but is the part of me that I think the system needs right now so that we get this result. Well, well if that part of you is consistent with your values mm-hmm. and, and you're able to, to um, be present in a non-anxious way okay. over time, you, you know, you'll develop the ability to change the system. 
Okay. So I guess maybe maybe the parallel would be from the story you told earlier. If normally you wouldn't want people to be on a death march, and that is something like that you would now be coaching people to never, ever do, in that context, it was what was called for. So the way you're authentic is you're open and transparent with everybody before you say, nobody's going home at night or on the weekends anymore. That's right. Okay. Okay. Or we're going to ship this, or we're going to ship this next week, come hell or high water. I think yeah, is yeah. the way one of um, you know one of my colleagues once described it. Okay. Okay. And you know, hell or high water came three or four times before the <laughs> thing actually got shipped because there was about a you know a bunch of unfinished work. Okay. That just you know exhortations to get it done and calls for more, for more overtime were insufficient to, to deliver the result. Yeah. Okay. Right. So if, if somebody is trying to learn more about this, to develop some of these abilities, they're going to have to study the Bowen system first and then figure out how to apply it. Right. Well, I think, I think one really good place to start from a business perspective, Mm -hmm. um, is, uh, Edwin Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve. Okay. Um, and uh, it, the 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 complete title of the book is Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And 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 that it talks about you know from a leadership perspective um, how to apply the theory you know in a variety of environments. Okay. And I, and I would imagine that the more you just start to think through this stuff and practice looking at your universe through these different lenses, the more you're going to be able to see it, and then you'll be able to decide how to take action on it. Yeah, and, and, and that's right. As, as I focus on my own behavior mm-hmm. and, and I can see the space between st- stimulus, what happens to me, and how I respond and create space to determine how do I live my values and, and then respond in a non-anxious way, then, you know, that increases my ability to be non-anxious even when the system around me is filled with anxiety. Okay. This is part of me that really wants to argue that sometimes anxious isn't a bad thing, but I don't know if that fits here. Anxious in in this context is something that's going to drive inauthentic or bad behavior that will affect others, correct? Right. Okay. Right. It's that tension between connected and separate that, you know, I want, I, you know, I want to be liked. I want to be in control. I want to be, um, you know, accepted, but not like you know, there, there's an anxious, just as a really simple example, people get anxious before they have to speak in public. That anxiety can be used as fuel. That's not well, a destructive anxiousness. Well, well, I think that the, the question is, well, the, the, that's the space between stimulus and response. Okay. Right. I mean, you know, there, there are times and, and sometimes it's just a bodily reaction. Mm-hmm. Is, is that you know there are times when when I'm under stress where you know my body behaves in certain ways that are n- not particularly helpful, mm-hmm. and I've learned how to recognize what's going on and how to respond in a non-anxious way. Okay, and you know, and rather than 
like spending a lot of time trying to prevent that thing from happening. It's like, I just deal with it. It's like, yeah, okay. I'm anxious now. You know, what do I, you know, how, do, how do I behave in a non-anxious yeah. way? Okay. So that, so that's important too. You can be full of fear or anxiety or whatever, and it doesn't have to run you. Well, you can become anxious You've got a stimulus that creates anxiety, yeah. and then in that space between stimulus and response, decide what drive. values are relevant here. Okay. How does my anxiety relate to an, an, an objective reality? Okay. You know, how much do I pay attention to it? Yeah. Right. And, and, then, and then what do I do next? This, this alone is a massive amount of self-awareness. That's right. Because most people are just like, No! Well, and but but that's what differentiates the most effective people from, you know, those who are not as effective. Yeah. Okay. I'm just thinking about. I mean, this is a silly example, but like when my we have a cat that's a little off, and, and when the cat attacks me, I like yell at the cat, which creates more anxiety, and that affects other parts of the system because now the other cat gets beat up by the cat that's anxious, and we all do the same kind of stuff at work. That's right. Okay. All right. So is there maybe one more here that we could touch on real quick before we kind of wrap it up? I mean, there's eight's too many to do in one podcast, but maybe we could hit one more. I mean, what I would suggest is that this is probably sufficient for people to ruminate on. Okay. Like what are the things that can do to be a non-anxious presence and, and what does it mean for me to become self-differentiated? And then in, whether it's working in my team or working in a team of teams, or if I have a leadership role, how do I show up as a leader? Yeah. Okay. That's really good. I think that's really important because you, how do you arrive as the person you want to be when you're leading others, not just the person who shows up and does their job? Cause you want to inspire, right. inspire yourself and others too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what if people want to reach out to you to find out more about this or the work that you've done? Um, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, they can you know reach out to me on on LinkedIn, okay, uh, or my uh, you know Twitter handle is at sign L Gresky, okay, and um, or my you know GitHub site is uh, a GitHub.com slash L Gresky, okay. Cool. So lots of ways to get a hold of me. All right. Thank you. And if if you're listening to this, this is a new kind of topic for us. So if this is a topic you'd like to hear more about, please reach out either to myself or to Len and let us know. And we'll keep heading down this path. Because I think for me, this is a really cool new set of stuff to learn that I hadn't I wasn't aware of before. So so mm-hmm. thank you for first also yeah, for, no. for tolerating my pre-interview questions because they were terrible, but Hopefully this is a little better. No, no problem. And, and and if people are interested in via email, it's leonard.gresky at leadingagile.com. All right, cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. You too. 